This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, good afternoon, friends. Happy Friday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Plenty to get to on the program today. Want to get right to our first guest, though. Tomorrow marks uh, the latest installment of the increases, planned increases, to Canada's carbon levy, also known as the carbon tax. Now, the government insists that the rebates offset what Canadians pay uh, for the carbon tax. In fact, in some cases, some households are better off. But some new research from Canada's parliamentary budget officer suggests that there's more that needs to be factored in here, not just the direct cost, but the indirect cost and the economic impact of the carbon tax. And moving forward, some households might see a net loss as a result of this. Yves Giroux is Canada's parliamentary budget officer and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Giroux, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's talk about this research because you've studied this previously, and I understand that this new research kind of builds off some of your previous research. Give us an update on on what it is you've been looking at here. Sure. So in uh, in July of this year, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and PEI will also enter into the backstop federal regime. So it means that these provinces will also be subjected to the federal carbon tax. So that was a good opportunity for us to update what we have done before when we looked at the provinces that are currently in the federal carbon tax regime. And we decided to to do that. Uh, Now is a good time. And also to update our previous job, not only with these three provinces, but also updated economic uh, information that we have, that we have, uh, that has evolved over time since we last issued a report on that topic. And we found that same as before, most households will be worse off once you also take into account the economic impact of the carbon tax. In a province like Alberta, it's it's relatively easy to understand that a carbon tax will have impacts, uh, uh, economic impacts. Uh, so that's uh, that's also taken into account in in our analysis. When you look just at the rebate, however. It, you take into account the the carbon tax and that households pay not only directly but also indirectly uh, through, for example, the energy component of goods and services that people buy, and this is going slightly up because of the carbon tax. So you take that into account minus the rebate, and we find that it's true that most households are better off uh, when you take just into account the rebate and the carbon tax that they pay on average, uh, but taking into account the economic impacts, that's the reverse that happens. Okay, so is that true now, or will that be true when we go from $50 per ton to $65 per ton, or, or are we talking about in future years? It's true now, and it continues to be true as the carbon tax increases. So the numbers in our report uh, are usually for the end game, so when the carbon tax reaches $170 a ton, and that's expected to happen by 2030. But the same the same holds true now and April 1st. So it's 
the, the numbers vary. So the size is, is obviously smaller when the carbon tax is lower. But as the carbon tax increases, uh, it's the same broad conclusions that remain true. That is, uh, most households are worse off with the carbon tax, financially speaking, uh, when you also take into account the economic impact of the carbon tax. Yeah, it's interesting that households are, will have a net cost, but that's not going to, to the government, is it? There's not really net revenue for government from this program. That's, that's the design of the program. When the government introduced the carbon tax, it promised that it would return the proceeds to households on an equal per capita basis. So the same amount to everybody within a province, irrespective of income. And the government's stated intention by doing that was to incentivize people to use less uh, carbon intensive fuels so that if you receive the same amount, irrespective of what you consume, the incentive is to use less carbon so that people will be better off. Now, as the price goes up, the rebate goes up. But I would imagine, though, as the price goes up, those indirect costs go up or there's there's a more measurable impact on the economy. So what's the association then between the rising price of carbon and, and the impact that has on the economy? Uh, the impact on the economy rises as the carbon price increases. Uh, and, and that's uh, very easy to understand. However, the relationship is not linear. When you have a $50 tax per ton of carbon emitted it's 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 it has an impact but not as expensive as when it reaches 170 dollars a ton so uh paying a little bit more for gas for example is is annoying but not painful but when it hits 170 dollars per ton then the impact starts to be felt even more so yes the economic impact it rises with the price of carbon, but it rises probably disproportionately unless there is an adjustment. And that's what the government is hoping. It's hoping to have people change their behavior to suffer less from the the carbon tax uh, as it increases. Right. And the the impact's not the same. What kind of differences do we see between lower income households and, and higher income households? So, for example, when you take into account the economic impact as well in a province like Alberta, so the lower income quintile, so the 20% at the bottom end of the income distribution, uh, will see a net cost of about $600 in 2030, whereas uh, a net benefit, sorry, in that case, for the low-income individuals and households. Uh, But for the fifth quintile, so the top 20% earners, economic and fiscal, they'll be worse off by about $8,000 in 2030. So it's a, a significant hit for households at the top, the top end of the spectrum, but still a, a small, small net benefit for those at the bottom end of the income spectrum because of the rebates. So in terms of adjustments here, I mean, if, if the government were to increase the rebates, that, that would come at a cost to, to government. There would you know, be additional costs associated with this program, but maybe that's one response. Another might be to adjust the, the schedule of the increases. What are some of the possible responses here? Well, some of the possible responses is relying less on fossil fuels for electricity generation, which would obviously have an impact. Um, also, uh, 
the the obvious recipes that environmental groups have been mentioning for a number of years driving less smaller cars etc but uh that's not me that's just uh what people have been saying right. if you want to reduce or minimize the impact of the carbon tax um but aside from reducing the quantity of fossil fuels that individuals use um you can minimize the cost you can reduce it but you cannot escape it because everything that people buy virtually everything has an energy component to it for example you buy food you you go to the grocery store uh you go for a haircut the hairdresser's uh, has to be the, the the saloon or the 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 place where you get your haircut has to be heated and air conditioned so there's an energy component virtually everywhere you go and for virtually everything you buy be it goods or services so it's very difficult to reduce the price of the the, the carbon tax that you pay to zero it's possible to reduce it but not reduce it to zero Right. And as we move toward 2030, you know, there there's still some things to get changed. We could still see some changes in the economy, changes with incomes, changes in in personal habits that you alluded to. So what are you going to be watching for in the coming years as you continue to study the impact of this? Well, we'll look at how the economy responds to to the increases in the carbon tax. For example, is there a shift away from fossil fuels to generate electricity to heat our homes? um what are the proceeds that the government is effectively collecting from the carbon tax so if we see a decrease or a plateauing we will we'll that will suggest that there is a significant behavioral change so that people are really adjusting to the increases in the carbon tax and we'll also be looking at additional government measures in the area of and the environment and fossil fuels to see if any of these measures will have a meaningful impact on the carbon tax that people pay and obviously on the rebates that uh, people receive. All right, well this full research it's uh, online at the website for the parliamentary budget office. Uh Yves Giroux, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. I really appreciate this. It's a pleasure. All the best, sir. Thanks again. Uh, that is Yves Giroux, Canada's parliamentary budget officer, PBO-DPB which would be the French uh, abbreviation uh, .ca, or just Google Parliamentary Budget Officer, but he's posted these reports. And so you can see all of this for yourself. This is what the Parliamentary Budget Officer does, is, is studies these things. So, yes, yeah, strictly speaking, if you look at the direct costs of the carbon tax and the rebate you receive, most households are essentially breaking even or slightly better off. But he says when you factor in the indirect costs... Most households are at a net loss, and that will continue to exacerbate as we march toward the upper limit of these price increases, $170 a ton eventually. So tomorrow, we go from 50 to 65 Just to put it in context, it's about $0.03 cents a liter gasoline addition. We'll go from about $0.11 cents per liter to $0.14 cents per liter in terms of the cost on gasoline that the carbon tax imposes. They're going to try to attack my credibility day in and day out, thinking that they're winning the war, which is really his freedom, when you're not. In fact, instead of playing the, um, you know, the media game, he should be worrying more about a court of law, not a court of public opinion. 
Well, that's uh, Michael Cohen, former lawyer for Donald Trump, former right-hand man for Donald Trump, somebody who himself went to prison related to the hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels, which presumably comprise uh, some or all of this uh, indictment against Donald Trump that we learned about last night. This grand jury in New York, after hearing and seeing all of the evidence, decided that an indictment should proceed. It's hugely significant, though. Donald Trump being the first former U.S. president to face criminal charges. So as mundane maybe as some of these charges might be and the technicalities of prosecuting these sorts of business fraud cases, I mean, this is hugely significant. And there's the potential for not just political uproar, but political unrest. And I think uh, in New York, they're already bracing for that next week when Donald Trump arrives to be arraigned. Well, joining us for some thoughts on the significance of the moment, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, David Frum, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's uh, author of the books Trumpocalypse and Trumpocracy, and uh, many moons ago himself was a former presidential speechwriter. David, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, Hello. So your thoughts... some overwhelming static on the line. Oh, do we? Okay. Okay, I'm yeah. here now. You're, you're good now? Okay, perfect. Yeah, all right. Now. Well, yeah, no, glad to have you with us here, first of all. But Thank you. Yeah, I mean, a lot to digest here in terms of the significance of this, what it means for Trump, what it means for, for politics in the United States. What, what are your initial impressions? Well, I think it's very important to start by acknowledging what we know and what we do not know. Um, it's been reported and confirmed by many witnesses that um, an indictment has issued. Uh, We've heard it credibly reported that there are 34 counts in the indictment, but what those counts are, we still don't know exactly. So you want to be really careful about making comments about the indictment when you don't know what's in it. Um, We have some ideas from reports from inside that grand jury room of what it might be um, and that the core of it might be falsifying business documents. Remember, Donald Trump did not pay the money directly to this woman with whom he had this brief relationship or allegedly brief relationship. Um, She was paid by his lawyer using the lawyer's own personal funds. And then Trump created a bunch of false invoices so that he could repay the lawyer. And creating those false invoices might have implications for his bank statements and especially, this is the most dangerous thing for him, for his taxes because it's not illegal to pay off people, but it's illegal to deduct those payoffs from your taxes. If that's what he did, then he could be in a lot of trouble. Right. There is that, that that bar, if there is a bar, I think maybe some people see that there is or could be when it comes to former presidents, that if criminal charges are to be laid against a former president, maybe the bar needs to be higher. Does, does this rise or will this rise to that level of seriousness? How are people going to view the idea of, you know, this history being made on what might be kind of technical or not all that serious charges? Well, let's are they not serious? Um, again, we don't know what they are. But right. here's the one, one piece of fact we have is that a few months ago, the Trump Organization, the company that Donald Trump owns and ran, was convicted in a New York court of criminal tax fraud in other matters where he used false invoices. So he, um, his, his chief financial officer, instead of paying the chief financial officer a salary on which the chief financial officer would pay tax, they would create false papers so that, he, that the company would buy him an apartment, buy him a car, pay for his kids' tuition at private school. And all that was tax fraud. Um, Donald Trump, uh, the New York Times reported in 2018 that they used false invoices to avoid hundreds of millions of dollars of estate taxes back in the 1990s. So if you've got a company that has a long practice of avoiding hundreds of millions of dollars through false invoices, 
And now here's there's another one. If that's what, what happened, and I'm not saying it did, we don't know, but if that's the pattern, then that's a pretty, I think a lot of people would feel like a former president should pay his taxes and not just mm-hmm. cheating on a few dollars, but hundreds of millions of them. Yeah. Well, like you say, we don't know what the charges are, let alone what the evidence is, and we should wait and see. But it is interesting to see, for the most part, Republicans, you know, Fox News, uh, you know, sort of that conservative political class basically denouncing all of this, that this is is an outrage, which seems to imply that the evidence doesn't really matter, that that Donald Trump is, I don't know, almost kind of above the law. Is is that fair to say? Well, it's so complicated. I'll tell you. If I had a free dinner for every time I heard somebody important in the Republican world say, I wish this guy were gone, I wish we had this behind us, why can't they send him to prison? <laughs> I'd have had a lot of free dinners. Um, so there is, um, among the, the, many of the same people you see on TV saying this is an outrage, are privately saying to their friends and their family and their loved ones, why didn't they act on him sooner? I wish they would send him to prison and get our nightmare over with already. So they're kind of caught in the trap of their own bad faith. They want him gone, but they want to pretend to be on his side while he's going. Right, which which is, you know, it's it's interesting because it felt like after he lost the election, and he did indeed lose the election, and then, you know, the, the awfulness around January 6th, it, it seemed like that was the moment that the Republican Party, you know, could wash itself of Donald Trump, be done with Donald Trump. Yet yeah. here we are, and he's still got this, this grip on the party. Well, they always, they're prepared to go a certain way down the road, but they won't do quite what is necessary to protect even themselves. Um, There are two impeachments of Donald Trump, of course, one for blackmailing the Ukrainians, threatening to withhold arms from Ukraine unless Ukraine fabricated a scandal against Joe Biden. And the second impeachment was, arose from the January 6th attacks on Congress. And the the second one, there were a lot of Republican votes. I think 10 in the House of Representatives and, and four, I think, in the Senate, if I remember it right. Um, not enough to remove, as you need two-thirds of the Senate to remove. But a lot of the senators, including the leader, Mitch McConnell, made this speech of saying that Donald Trump was, was responsible. He led the attack. This is all his fault. And they sort of thought that would be enough. They didn't want to go all the way. And in politics, sometimes just enough is not enough. You have to go all the way. So in terms of whether this, this strengthens him in some way as a candidate, it almost seems, you know, Reverse to, to to think that criminal charges could enhance somebody's electability. I don't know that it necessarily would with the general electorate. When you look at the Republican fields and and you know whatever challenges he might face in in the primary, if he's got Republicans rallying around behind him, if Republicans see this as some kind of a political witch hunt, could this does this help him in a way? Well, it certainly complicates the life of his party rivals, people like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What Ron DeSantis' message has been to the party's big donors is, um, you know, I agree with Trump on so much, but I don't have the scandals. I work harder. I'm more disciplined. I'm younger. I'm, cl- I'm, a, I'm a clean pair of hands. Uh, what, what you get, everything you like about Trump, I'll do, but minus everything you don't like about Trump. But the problem is you need to agree that the things you don't like about Trump are bad things. So if the message now is, you know, everything you like about Trump, I do, and everything you don't like about Trump is a phony witch hunt, then then why not, you know, why not go with, why, why go with diet Trump when you can have the full flavor Trump? 
It is interesting. Someone like Ron DeSantis, who you know has been incredibly successful uh, politically in, in Florida, an important state, uh, someone who would seem to check all the boxes in terms of being you know a prominent national Republican figure, uh, someone who up until recently you know seemed to have the support of this same kind of conservative ecosystem. But it's almost like the moment Donald Trump says, you know, this guy's a loser, it, it's just kind of like it, it puts a pin in all of that, just takes all of the the air and momentum out of it i mean is it is it too soon to conclude that you know donald trump's unbeatable and ron desantis will have to wait you know another you know till 2028 well uh, it, it is too soon to say that as a fact but desantis has been deflating for a while uh, in the polls in, in good polls in early february he had almost caught up with donald trump the trump was a little ahead but um they, they were close but over in the polls, between, starting with February 15th, he began to deflate. And in the last polls, just before the indictment dropped yesterday, uh, he was now 30 points behind. So it's an interesting question. Why did he drop so far behind? And, and part of that is, look, he's not a very exciting personality. Uh, part of that is these indictment rumors had begun to circulate. Trump spread some of them himself, and that created the kind of rally-around-the-flag effect among Republicans. But there's one other problem, and this is a hard one for DeSantis to evade. What DeSantis did was he took the Trump very conservative cultural message, um, you know, uh, know, anti-everything that the Fox News viewer doesn't like, but he joined it to a a pretty tough message on economic issues that were good for the very rich donors, but not so good for the retirees who are the people voting Republican primaries. Mm -hmm. And Trump has been hitting them hard. On a lot of his votes, when back when DeSantis was a member of Congress, he voted to cut Medicare. He voted to raise the retirement age of Social Security to age 70. And Trump spent a couple million dollars dropping those ads just in the past week. And that seems to have had an impact because Trump, you know, DeSantis would say, and he, I think he's right about this, hey, I was worried about the debt. And Trump, of course, in not in business, not in politics, he's never worried about debt. Pilot on. Right. Now, in the meantime, there's also the concern that there could be some unrest. We saw what happened on January 6, 2021. Uh, you know, the bracing maybe for trouble next week in New York. I mean, what's your level of concern about that kind of a reaction to all of this? Well, I, I, I worry about un, um, unrest a lot, but I, I don't imagine it as like another big January 6 commotion. Those things have to be organized, and I think it'll be dangerous for Trump to try to organize it a second time. But off the top in this hour, revisiting the topic of foreign interference in Canada. And yes, we focused a lot on China. And of course, China, I think, is really one of three countries that we keep a close eye on when we're having this conversation. Uh, One of those is Russia. And there's an interesting new report looking at Russia's information warfare efforts and attempts to try to undermine Canadian support for Ukraine. This is a report that looks up, uh, looks at a, a two-year period, including the lead-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. It's called Enemy of My Enemy, and it finds that pro-Kremlin Twitter accounts are trying to weaponize users of social media on both the far left and the far right to try to undermine that support. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, one of the authors of this report, leading expert uh, on this topic, Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org, also a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute's Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Marcus, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. All right. So as I mentioned, this covers a, a two-year period, so this is pretty extensive. Yeah. But how do you go about monitoring and measuring this sort of thing? What is it you're looking at, first of all? 
Well, look, I mean, with uh, Disinfo Watch, we've been keeping a, uh, a very close eye on uh, on Russian state media, the narratives that they produce, and uh, and a lot of those accounts, uh, both here in in Canada and abroad, that that take those narratives and amplify them to the uh, broader Canadian and and uh, global audience. Uh, and so what we did is we took uh, those accounts that, you know, we've been monitoring um, and worked uh, with uh, SIDAC. This is an organization that's based out of the University of Regina. It's a, a research team of tech experts led by uh, Brian McGuinn. Um, what they did is they took these, uh, these accounts and the narratives that were, we spotted uh, targeting uh, Ukraine, NATO, uh, Canada as well in the context of, uh, of of Ukraine and the war, and they ran a uh, an extensive analysis of those networks and and how that those narratives were were being shared, uh, and this includes narratives uh, that uh, basically accuse you know NATO of having started the war uh, in Ukraine. Um, you know I think a lot of your listeners will be uh, will recall that narrative early on where Vladimir Putin claimed that he was. His forces were engaging in a three-day operation to denazify Ukraine. Uh, you know, Ukraine's president is, of course, uh, of, of Jewish heritage, uh, and there are no far-right parties in Ukraine's in, in Ukraine's parliament. And so, what those narratives are, are crafted to do are is to erode Western support for Ukraine um, and to break down that support that we're, we're sending them. And so this team based out of uh, University of Regina, what they did is they took those narratives, those accounts that were sharing them, and they analyzed them for two years. And what they found was that there was a, a, a steep intensification, two times the amount of tweets. Uh, they doubled uh, pretty much overnight in the weeks running up to the war, and they've been increasing ever since then. And this is a, a measure of both um, you know, those accounts that are directly controlled by the Russian government and those uh, on the sort of far right and far left that amplify them. And so there was a cl- clear intensification of those uh, of those uh, narratives that I mentioned being being tweeted. And and so through this, over the, the course of the next 12 months, meaning the, the previous uh, uh, 12 months that uh, that Russia has uh, engaged in this war, uh, like I said, we've seen this, the intensification of that, of those efforts to, uh, to promote disinformation and the weaponization of the far right and the far left uh, by Russian information operations. And those narratives that they're using have been sort of, uh, they've been adapted to focus more specifically on Canada. And so what we're seeing is, uh, you know, stories that are, um, that are suggesting that for example, uh, Canadian politicians of Ukrainian heritage, our Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland among them, uh, suggesting because of that heritage that they're, they have some sort of sympathy with Ukrainian neo-Nazis to try and, um, you know, uh, intimidate and, and to silence them and their criticism of the, of the war. Uh, there have also been suggestions that Canadian sanctions that target uh, Russia, that they are somehow cause, directly causing uh, in the inflation that we're seeing, the surges in energy prices, and again, all of that is is intended to erode Canadian support uh, for for Ukraine. And and unfortunately, our study is also showing that some of this is working. Um, you know, polls are that we've taken uh, have uh, demonstrated that 
support for Ukraine is softening amongst some Canadians, especially those um, who identify as, as conservatives. And so some of these narratives targeting them may be working, unfortunately. Um, and we make some recommendations at the end of that report as well to uh, to defend our democracy uh, against these sort of narratives and build up our, our national resilience uh, so that uh, these narratives don't or are, are less able or less effective at uh, manipulating our public perceptions of, of geopolitics and specifically that war in, in, in Ukraine. Yeah. Well, and it, these these efforts seem pretty sophisticated. I mean, essentially, we're, we're talking about, as the report finds, about 90, sort of a core group of, of 90 yeah. or just under 100 Twitter accounts. And there's this, this right. kind of ecosystem that exists because it's quite remarkable that, you know, you got these 90 or so Twitter accounts, uh, you know, that are able to, by extension, you know, reach potentially millions of Canadians. Yeah, the impact of those core accounts is quite remarkable. And it, like you said, um, you know, we, we, we looked at uh, hundreds of thousands of accounts and we really boiled it down to these, these 90. And, um, you know, about a third of them were, uh, you know, far left, about two thirds were far right. And I should clarify that when I say far left and far right, I don't mean that, uh, you know, the far right, these are far right conservatives. Um, these are more illiberal, sort of anti-establishment, anti-government types on the far left and far right. And, uh, and they've gone so far to the far left and far right that they actually meet up sort of 180 degrees opposite yeah. of, uh, of liberal democracy. And so that's why we're sort of, in our report, we call them illiberal far left and, and uh, far right uh, groups. But uh, as you mentioned, they, they do have an impact. Uh, there are a lot of Canadians that, that see those tweets. And, and uh, we found that there are 200,000 Canadian accounts uh, that are receptive, unfortunately, to those narratives. And uh, and that's the size of that ecosystem. So when these narratives get injected in there by this small group of accounts, they reverberate uh, amongst 200,000, uh, around 200,000 accounts that are uh, largely been primarily geolocated to Canada. So they are having an impact. And, and this is really one of the first studies of its kind uh, to measure that impact and just the size of these. And this is, a, we're not talking about only about Twitter. Uh, you know, there are other social media platforms where this is happening as well. But if this is happening on Twitter, you can be sure that it's happening on those others. Well, no doubt, no doubt. So you, you talked about the recommendations you make in this report here. What, what in your experience, what did you find in this report then in terms of the most effective way of responding? Well, look, I think that everyone is hoping to find a silver bullet. And unfortunately, there is no silver bullet to fixing this problem. Um, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, and I think that the problem has become quite acute. And that's what we found in this study as well. Um, so one of the most important ways that we can sort of in the long term tackle this problem is, is primarily through education. Um, working with uh, the provinces, uh, with local school boards to ensure that uh, Canadian school curriculum uh, has digital media literacy as a, as a core part of those curriculums. We're not talking about just one course a year or one course in, in high school, but uh, to make sure that the entire curriculum, that every single course, uh, that uh, all the courses that our, our youth take, that there is an element of media, digital media literacy uh, in there. And, and by doing that, we will provide the, the cognitive resources, um, the, the critical thinking skills uh, to ensure that future generations 
uh, are inoculated uh, against disinformation. That doesn't mean that everyone will be protected, but I think that if uh, if our if our uh, again our future generations have those resources, they'll have the ability to uh, filter out uh, the bad information that these foreign actors are trying to inject into it. And then the the other important recommendation uh, that uh, that's published in that report is that. Um, the government needs to take a, a start a whole, whole of society, whole of democracy approach to combating uh, disinformation. That means bringing uh, stake, all stakeholders uh, around the table. That's government uh, officials from all of the political parties, conservatives, liberals, NDP, Greens as well, um, making sure that media, professional uh, journalists are at the table and social media as well and civil society. Uh, to start this dialogue, because everyone has a role to play in defending our democracy and cleaning up our information environment. That's not happening yet. Right now, we've got, we're taking a top-down approach. Uh, there are a lot of great government initiatives, but unfortunately, those departments aren't talking to each other. And so we need to start that dialogue altogether um, if we want to uh, to create a long-term defense of our democracy. So those are just two of the recommendations. There are others as well. Right. And I suppose part of it is awareness. I mean, you know, we, we know what Russia has been up to in Western countries uh, and we should or should have anticipated that with yeah. something as big as this, the invasion of Ukraine, that there would be an information warfare component to that. Yes. Well, those of us who have been watching and, uh, and writing about and monitoring Russian uh, disinformation for the past, you know, 10 to 15 years, we absolutely anticipated uh, that. Uh, Russia would ramp up its uh, its operations uh, before, and you know, I, I was called. I was pointing out some of those narratives already six months before the war uh, began. So, um, yeah, I mean, what we need to be doing is is learning from the past and anticipating where those uh, those attacks will happen. Uh, you know, uh, we, some of us were calling on the federal government to do much more when uh, when COVID hit. Uh, we anticipated that uh, Russian information operations would would try to exploit uh, the pandemic, the, the, the coming fear of it. And indeed, uh, we witnessed them do that. Uh, and they did it very effectively um, throughout COVID. And, and even during the Ottawa trucker protests, we, we saw Russian state media uh, providing uh, international platforms for extremist voices uh, within both of those, the anti-lockdown and and the Ottawa protest movements, and uh, and they do that. The Russian information operations and those uh, the propagandists are very effective at identifying the most divisive and and potentially polarizing issues in society. And what they do is they they uh, essentially sink their fangs into them and they start pulling in both directions, to the left and to the right, uh, to divide us. And so, knowing that and armed with that knowledge, what we should be doing again is is anticipating. Uh, where they might strike next. And if we can do that effectively and, and put together a system whereby we raise awareness of what those information operation narratives might look like, we might have a, uh, a fighting chance of inoculating our, our society against them. Oh, great point. Well, this particular study can be found at uh, tracesofconflict.com. That's the website of the Center for Artificial Intelligence, Data and Conflict that you reference. Uh, much more as well, disinfowatch.org. Marcus, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All the best. That's uh, Marcus Kolga, as mentioned, uh, founder of disinfowatch.org, senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, and uh, co-author of this report called Enemy of My Enemy.
and an interesting look at this social media ecosystem that's designed to try to amplify these Russian narratives. And there's a lot of um, what's often referred to as useful idiots. We've called them tankies in the past, although that's typically referred to the far left. Uh, but I think definitely tanky applies uh, to where there is that overlap, as Marcus mentioned, on the far left and on the far right. All right, welcome back. Well, some big developments uh, regarding, uh, I guess you could say, broadly speaking, telecommunications, the Internet, telecom in Canada, in the nation's capital. Today, the federal government announcing that they are approving the Rogers-Shaw merger. So that is going to go forward. I guess the Rogers takeover, the purchase of Shaw, the industry minister insisting today uh, that this is actually good for competition, which is curious. We also got yesterday uh, the government invoking closure. And to get to third and final vote on the passage of Bill C-11, which is uh, an overhaul or an update, I guess you could say, of the Broadcasting Act and the government's attempt to bring some of the big tech giants like, say, Netflix or Spotify under the auspices of the Broadcasting Act. But there's a lot of concern over what it could mean for user-generated content on certain platforms. Uh, And even though the Senate proposed an amendment to very specifically exclude user-generated content, uh, the government rejected that. So joining us uh, to talk more about these two big stories here uh, unfolding this afternoon, very pleased to welcome to the program Laura Tribe, Executive Director with the group Open Media, or openmedia.org. Laura, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the Roger Shaw merger. Maybe not surprising that the government has given the green light to this. I think we were kind of anticipating that. Uh, the industry minister today insisting that this actually represents more competition in Canada, which is curious since we're losing one of the big players here. But uh, your, your thoughts on where this is at? Uh, I think curious is maybe the nice way to say it. I would say it is sure. untrue. Uh, <laughs> I think that I understand why the minister wants to present this as a good deal for Canadians, uh, but fundamentally it is not. It is a good deal for the Rogers family and the Shaw family and their shareholders. Uh, But when it comes to the state of Internet, uh, cell phone affordability in Canada, this is not going to help Internet users across the country, unfortunately. Right. So the government's pointed to the fact that uh, Videotron is going to take over Freedom Mobile. And I guess the hope is, the expectation is that there'll be a relevant fourth player that can compete with the big three, one of which, uh, as noted, just got a little bit bigger. Uh, What are we to make of those uh, assurances? Uh, I think it's really interesting to hear the minister talk about how we're now going to have this fourth national carrier as though this is this new idea. But that's been the idea behind freedom this entire time. That's exactly what Freedom Mobile is and how the government has tried to support them to date. So I think, you know, in the best case scenario, Freedom is no longer owned by Shaw. It's known by Videotron and it's more of the same. And I think in the worst case scenario for people, you know, in the East who are in Quebec or Ontario, uh, you know, who might have previously had access to both Freedom and Videotron services, they're actually losing a provider. So we're not seeing anything new being created here. We're seeing a small reduction in what already exists and more of the same, unfortunately. Now, the minister also insisted that, look, there's some expectation these companies have to live up to. There will be some consequences if they don't. Is any of that reassuring? No, unfortunately, it's really not. Uh, you know, we heard the minister this morning talk at the press conference at length about how there are these conditions and expectations and commitments and promises. And even for those commitments and promises that are contractual, and not all of them are, some of them are just promises, uh, which have no way to hold them accountable. 
even for those, the consequences for the companies not meeting them are not as significant as we might like to think. Uh, so I'll give you a concrete example. The consequences for Rogers failing to meet the obligations is a, up to $1 billion penalty fine. That sounds really big, right? Except that the obligations that they've promised are $1 billion of connectivity for remote rural Indigenous communities, $5.5 billion to build out 5G and other network infrastructure, and the development of 3,000 jobs in Western Canada to be maintained for at least 10 years, plus the development of a Western headquarters in, uh, for Rogers. And so all of that's going to cost a lot more than a billion dollars. And if the company decides at some point, this just isn't worth it, they have a get-out-of-jail-free card. They can just spend the much smaller amount and forget their obligations and have lived up to the contract entirely. And so I think that, you know, despite the fact that all of the conditions the minister made today were pretty much in Roger's original proposal and their original promises, not really anything new on the table, even the, the contractual agreements we're talking about, the ways to hold them accountable, aren't really that strong. And even if Rogers decides not to pay, you know, we'll have a lengthy court case on our hands and a long legal battle just yeah. to get them to pay. Uh, so I think that's really discouraging for those of us who are hoping that, you know, maybe the deal would be undone or there would be bigger consequences for Rogers as opposed to just a financial equation they need to run for what the choice is. Right. So that's to say the government could have crafted a better response here, demanded more, imposed more. Or was this deal a non-starter? Was it just that, you know, there was no really good way for the government to approve this? It just, it shouldn't have happened. I mean, I think from the public interest perspective, from the interest of the end user, this deal is not good for Canadians and shouldn't have happened. I think that even if the government thinks this is fine for Canadians, and I'm, I'm surprised if they do actually believe that, I understand why they have to say it, but I think if they truly believe that, that's surprising. Um, they didn't do the amount of work that they could have or should have to improve the deal to minimize the damage to Canadians or to really hold the companies to account. And I think they probably did what they thought they could or what they thought was reasonable. But at the end of the day, you know, we're looking at conditions that have five-year, 10-year obligations. Minister Champagne's not going to be in that position in 10 years to see if the deal really worked out the way they wanted. And if 10 years down the road, this didn't work out as we were promised, what are we going to do about it? Get a billion dollars? Like, that's not going to fix 10 years of damage to our cell phone prices, to our internet services, to those in Indigenous and remote communities who still don't have quality connection. And so, you know, meeting those deliverables maybe sooner and, and more of them, I think, might have helped as well. Let's turn our attention here to Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act, which is meant to try to impose the Broadcasting Act on, on the Internet or on the big tech companies. And you know, as I said in the introduction, I think that that's going to be awkward for a lot of reasons. But I, I know open media has been one of the groups that's really been leading the charge to make sure that we're leaving users alone, that user-generated content does not fall under the auspices of this bill. But now that we saw third and final reading of this amended Bill C-11, where, where are we at on that? So we saw the bill uh, put forward going to the Senate in a way that would include user-generated content. And when the Senate reviewed the bill, they made a number of amendments and sent it back to the House saying, you know, we don't think it should include user-generated content. And they included amendments to that. Late last night, uh, we saw the House of Commons vote to send the bill back to the Senate, and they rejected that amendment. So basically, the House of Commons has said, no, 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 we're including user-generated content in this bill. And so the bill is not finalized because parliamentary procedure takes a long time and can be quite complicated and technical when it has to be. But right now it's, it's back to the Senate. And so it's up to the Senate to decide at this point, basically, do they 
accept the House of Commons reason for why they want to include user-generated content, or are they going to continue to oppose the bill as the House has put forward? Uh, so Open Media is currently running a campaign to let people contact their senators to try and pressure them to, again, stand up for excluding user-generated content. And by that, we mean like our personal YouTube videos we put up online, the kind of things we put on Facebook or Twitter. You know, we're not talking about um, all content. We're talking about like my content that I put on the internet as, as an individual person. This isn't professional monetized content. It's, you know, my family content that I'm putting up there. Um, and so we're hoping that the Senate will, again, stand up for users and see where that goes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think you're right. I think in practice, what the government's doing is is saying that user-generated content will fall into this bill, but they're trying to claim otherwise. And, and this gets into some of the technicalities of the bill. Uh, the government insists that this is not about user-generated content, but it seems pretty clear based on how this bill is written that there are some exceptions here <laughs> that will, in fact, include user-generated content. So how do we sort all of that out? Well, I understand why the government doesn't want you to think that's what they're targeting. And and they're not. Like, their goal in this bill is to make sure that big platforms, big tech companies are really putting forward and promoting and prioritizing Canadian content. Uh, but I think there's a lot of problems with that. So when you look at, take YouTube as an example, some of the best content that I view on YouTube, I would deem Canadian. It is, you know, Canadians doing canoe trips, going camping right. in the north, exploring, explaining, you know, things about our country. It doesn't count as CanCon, right? And so even things that you would say, okay, even if you expand it to, like, help promote the kinds of content being created, that doesn't count. And so really what they're doing is saying on those platforms, we don't want content that could compete with traditional professional content to be prioritized over it. And we want to make sure that platforms like YouTube are not allowing people to access music in a way that would circumvent the conditions we'd like to put on something like Spotify or the radio. And so where they're coming from and what their intention might be is not to say we want to regulate every single video on the internet, but the way they wrote the bill is still doing that. And so regardless of whatever their intention is, the consequences are that our regulator they're trying to put this forward to, the CRTC, is now being given the power to do that. Regardless of what the purpose might be or the intention, that power is in there, like it or not. And I think that's where, you know, we can hear talk from the government about what they want to do, but that mm -hmm. might not necessarily line up with what they are doing. Indeed. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Much more on uh, both of these uh, important topics. Again, openmedia.org. Laura, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Laura Tribe, Executive Director with the group Open Media, openmedia.org. Uh, so as mentioned, more on uh, both of these topics, you can go to openmedia.org. And as she said, with regard to C-11, you know, there's the opportunity to contact your senator. And, you know, we have a number of senators here in Alberta. You don't necessarily have one for your riding, per se. They're just kind of all ours. Uh, so you can contact them and tell them, like, don't give in here. Maybe we get a bit of a, a ping pong match where this bill bounces between the House and the Senate. But OK, I'm fine with that because I think this is going to be a problem. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.